You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. Today's episode features Anna Friedrich and her lecture, Grief and Anger, Appropriate Responses at the Tomb of Lazarus, in Dylan Thomas's poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, and in our own lives. Anna is one of the workers at the Southboro branch of Labrie. In the beloved Emmy Award-winning film, Anna Green Gables, Shortly after the heartbreaking death of Matthew Cuthbert, if you remember, Matthew and Marilla are the brother-sister duo who have adopted this orphan named Anne. They were older when they adopted her, so Matthew died pretty soon after the adoption. Um, Shortly after he died, in fact, in the film, the very next scene after his funeral, We see Anne in her bed at night weeping. This girl who has known tragedy upon tragedy, loss after loss. We see her in her bed weeping, and Marilla, the sister of the brother-sister duo, like the mother figure for Anne, comes to her room in the night to offer her comfort. And she does offer offer her comfort. She physically holds her. She walks into her room and she she holds her. She tells her that it's been hard throughout her life, her own life, Marilla's life, to say the things in her heart, but Anne mustn't think that she loves her any less than she did. So she does offer Anne some comfort. However, she also says, and I quote, there now, oh dear, It won't bring him back. It's not right to cry so. God knows best. Marilla is, of course, depicted as a pious, moral, albeit strict, woman. In the story, she is a true Christian. And this is the wisdom she offers to Anne in the midst of tragedy. It's not right to weep, God knows best. I don't think this is uncommon in Christian churches and in Christian homes. In fact, many Christians think these often called negative emotions, of which grief is one, are some kind of moral failure. N.T. Wright comments, when Paul says he doesn't want us to grieve like people who have no hope in 1 Thessalonians, He doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to grieve at all. (laughs) Thank you, N.T. Wright. Or listen to this, these words. These are the opening words in an excellent book. It's just come out. I read it this spring. It's on the book table called Untangling Emotions. I highly recommend it. Listen to this wisdom from two counselors. 
unlike our assumption that the most faithful people will be the most carefree and emotionally upbeat, unlike that assumption, Scripture is full of aching, grieving saints who tear their clothes and sit in the ashes when their world gets upended. The basic logic in the Bible is this. If you care about others and the kingdom and mission of God in this world, you will be and you should be full of sorrow when you or those you love are injured, suffer loss, or die. You ought to feel angry in the presence of injustice. As counterintuitive as it seems, awful feelings like grief or anger can actually be exactly the right feelings to have. Feelings that honor God and would be wrong not to feel. So, grief, anger, not the most comfortable things to feel. Uh, They're not the most comfortable things to be around as other people feel them. So we're tempted to try to get past, try to ignore, try to stuff. And as Christians, there can even be a moralizing of this. This kind of emotional immaturity is sometimes seen as proof that you really believe in God's sovereignty. Kind of like Marilla, this this is wrong because God knows best. However, this was and is not the way of Jesus. A man of complex emotions that ranged from elation to near despair. Jesus, the exact representation of God's being, according to Hebrews 1. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1, was not a stoic. He was not unmoved. Nor did he maintain a carefree and emotionally upbeat attitude. Human experiences, which Jesus knew full well, of loss are real and they can be bitter. And our God and our scriptures do not shy away from this. Even as God's sovereignty is revealed and affirmed, we're never instructed to pretend life isn't hard and potentially bitter. Remember Naomi, if you were part of our conversation yesterday. One of the most helpful moments, says Naomi, you know I love dearly, in the scriptures is found in the gospel accounts, in John's gospel, in the life of Jesus, where the death and the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' dear friend, are recorded. Okay, listen to these opening words. This great book. It's a couple paragraphs, but it's worth it. Jesus wept. That's how the whole book began. <laughs> that was kind of a strange thing to do. Sorry, a strange thing for him to do, don't you think? We don't know how you picture Jesus, but your mental image is probably not of him wrapped by sobs as tears run down his cheeks into his beard. Jesus bleeding on the cross, yet forgiving his enemies? Sure. Jesus with children in his lap, smiling compassionately? You bet. 
Jesus wailing loudly or shaking with silent tremors at a funeral? Not so much. Yet that is exactly what the Bible says. Standing with Mary, the sister of his close friend Lazarus, and staring at her brother's fresh grave, Jesus is stabbed by grief and breaks down in tears. Now think about this. As God, Jesus controls the entire universe and can change anything at any time. In fact, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in around five minutes. Why on earth would Jesus weep when he's about to do an amazing miracle and fix the problem? Because he's perfect. He cries at the death of his friend and is deeply moved by Mary's anguish because that is what love does when confronted with loss. Jesus is the only perfect being who has ever lived And that is why he does not refuse to share the pain of those he loves, not even for ten minutes, not even when he knows their sorrow is about to turn into (coughs) astonished exultation. Have you ever thought about grief or anger as something that could be right and important? Amen. So we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. This story has a lot of surprises in it, there are interesting gaps in the story. There are, um, there's dialogue that we can easily relate to. We're going to talk about that in a bit. And then moments in this story that leave me asking, what in the world? What is going on? So my hope for this workshop is to read this story in John 11. Starts on your first page, continues on to the second. And then to place it beside a well-known poem that deals with similar themes by the late Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. It's an untitled poem, but it's often known by its first line. Do not go gentle into that good <coughs> So my hope is to hold them side by side. Both are confronting death. Both have imperatives. They have commands for us to wrestle with. Both deal with grief and anger. And in this juxtaposition, holding them beside each other, comparing and contrasting, I think some helpful things can come alive for us. So, I do hope this time will truly be more like a workshop. I'm not going to lecture for an hour. I have particular questions we're going to work through for both texts, and I am banking on your involvement. So, let's start. I'm going to read John 11, 1 to 44. It takes about six minutes to read this many verses, just to prepare you. But I love the public reading of scripture. I love to be able to read a big chunk as opposed to just a verse here and there. So sit back and enjoy a lengthy reading. You can even close your eyes. You promise to stay away. <laughs> if it helps you concentrate, or you can follow along. I just crossed out this line on page two because I didn't, it's distracting. I didn't mean it to be there. It was a, um, like a, a heading, you know, and then you get rid of all those. <clears throat> this is John 11, 1 to 44 in the NIV. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her... Noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out. <laughs> his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take out the grave clothes and let him go. <laughs> the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So, here we see Jesus clearly grieving, but also angry. You see that in the text at all. What's translated as deeply moved and troubled in spirit, everything you read about it says those are not the best words in English to translate here. These are words, these are images of a horse literally snorting and pawing at the ground as if to charge into battle. And these are words of anger. Go search it out in many a commentary. Calvin makes a really big deal of it. This is a, a champion horse about to go into battle. So we see Jesus here with these companion emotions that we're talking about in this workshop. Grief and anger. Now, something I feel really passionately about is just going into the scriptures together with other people. I love the scriptures. I love to try and learn how to study them well, how to engage them well, how to live them for Pete's sake. Not just think about them, but live them. And some of the simplest things I have come up with and that I practice myself are right here. And we're going to apply them to this passage as well as to the poem. So in order to dive in, to think about, to potentially live this story and to hear clearly Jesus' grief and anger, we're going to go through these together. This is, these are basically Bible study tools, but these are also poetry study tools. These are also visual art study tools. These are also appreciation of music tools. So that's where we're going to start at the very top. Do you see, did you hear any repeated words? Words, images, 
any kind of repetition in this passage of scripture. Feel free to yell it at him. He's repeating that he's dead. Yes, the dead man. He's not called Lazarus several times. The dead man, the dead man. That's good. Sweet comes up. Yep. He's sick. He's sick. Yes. Yeah. Very hard to ask exactly the same question. Or, or, or if they, if you had been here. I know. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Did Jesus loved him. Comes up Jesus loved him. Very good. The word rise. Sorry. The word rise. Rise. Very good. Somebody else was speaking at the same time. He loved Martha too. Says that first. That he loved her. He loved Martha. Oh, then it says, I'm glad this happened for your sake. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, I think it's interesting Martha's interaction with Jesus, just not in this particular passage, but I remember being struck by that in the past as I was reading through the gospel, but there's certain key moments which you asked, like, can you say I am? Yeah, I feel like that also was this moment. Affirming the divinity of Jesus. Yep. Weeping. Other repetition? What was that? Weeping. Weeping. Says twice that he was deeply moved. Yes. Says twice that he was deeply moved. And he's not yet at the tomb. Both times, which I find interesting. But yeah, twice deeply moved. He, he also says, uh, this is for your sakes that he didn't come, and that you may believe, which I think is the same thing. Yes, believe is said a lot of times in this passage. It would be worth going back and reading that. Very good. Any others? Things repeated. Did you make mention of time more specific? Like, they said it two more days or 12 hours in a day? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The passage of days, day and night. Yeah. The emphasis of the family relationships of sisters, and several times we hear the term sisters. Yeah. Do we hear any other? Any other family relationship? Father, father and son. Father and son. Did anybody mention time yet? It's just all this reference about walking at night, walking in the day, and of course, yep. the three days it took them to get there that's mentioned over and over. Yep, time. The major theme of these. Very good. She did mention it, but she didn't that. Exactly. Early in that passage, Jesus says um, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then for the end, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Yes. Glory. I have this far-fetched dream someday to do like a whole biblical theology of the word glory. There's a lot of amazing dreams up there. It'll take a decade. <laughs> Light and darkness. Light and darkness, yes. Thank you. Similar to day and night. Including the blind man. What's that? Including the blind man reference. Including the blind man reference, yes. Very cool. Yes. There's like a general grouping of the Jews responding. Yes. Yep. Sometimes the Jews as a group in the Gospels don't get positive airtime, <laughs> but there's a bit of it in this one. The Jews said, see how he loved him. There's a lot of movement. 
Yeah. From place to place? Yes. Walking. Jerusalem's 12, 2 miles away. Reverend Sister Lou. Yep, the sister's coming out to meet him. He had not yet left the place where he met Martha, so Mary came out to meet him there. How about, do you see any particular verb repeated? I thought see. See? Yeah, sight. Yeah, good. Believe, definitely. This verb is not repeated, but the word stone is used as a verb to stone and then is later used as a noun. Christ has power over the stone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They took away the stone. Sort of goes back to this, even the passivity of being stone, he would not have been unintelligent either. Mm. The other what verb is here. Here? Yeah. Another sensing verb. Seeing, hearing. What about go? Go is actually used a ton in these 44 verses. Very good. Okay, we've, we've looked at some repetition. We're going to move on to questions. No doubt you've heard at least some teaching. Clearly you've heard some teaching on this text. But even given that, okay, this takes a little bit of patience, but it's worth it. Even given that, do any questions arise for you as you heard this read or you read it? To ask questions when we come to a text is to practice humility. To say, I don't fully understand everything that's here. It's to practice curiosity. This, these 44 verses will no doubt have triggered, enlightened, confused, or blessed you in a variety of ways. So can we air some questions? Yes. Right there at the beginning, I've always wondered, this is Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yeah. And because he loved them, he waited. I don't get that. I understand the whole story, but it doesn't. Yes. We're going to resist trying to answer each other's questions, by the way. This is an important discipline. <laughs> At this point, it is. It's a really important discipline as you study the Bible with, with other people. Not that there's not a time for that, but right now we're just airing the questions that arise. Thank you for that. Uh, Jesus, the answer to the, to the disciples' question seems like a total... <laughs> when they're like, we can't go back there because it's dangerous. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's like, there's 12 hours of day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. The sun rises. Yes. Other questions. Yeah. Why is the Why is the focus? I just noticed this in what the gentleman over here said. He just read, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and that led to this question. Why is Martha the emphasis here? Because it's always Martha and Mary. I think of that, but I just now noticed that. Mm. Her sister, I mean Martha and her sister. It's not, Mary isn't mentioned until later when Martha goes to get her. Yeah. Or send word back to her, I mean. Yeah. Good question. Yes. Mary and Martha say the exact same thing, but Jesus responds is so different to both of them. Beautiful. Yes, thank you. Good, yeah. I, I've always wondered, like, if Martha had an inkling of something coming. Just that, of her, like, like what she says to him, you wouldn't have been through my breath, but I know that the Lord will do whatever you ask. Okay, like, so your question is, did she have did some she kind of No, yeah, did she have some sort of yeah. 
next, we're going to look for beauty. That's the third thing I'm recommending, which is a sort of knowing what we really feel, to quote T.S. Eliot. We desperately need to be people on the lookout for beauty. We're quick to condemn, we're quick to critique, we're quick to complain. But why don't we come to a text in the scriptures and name the beauty that we spot in a text like this? Name it as such. Especially because this is a work of art. John is a poet. So what do you see in this text that you could call good, excellent? What delights you in this story? Well, um, that first, uh, when the sisters asked Jesus, Lord, the one you love, he loves Lazarus. So, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Just in the context, that's the, the phrase, I'm the resurrection and the life, we, we use a lot in church. But you read it in context, and I mean, that, that's a profound moment. That's a, he's either for real or he's not. Nobody says that unless they're one or the other. That's, that's just a profound, um, kind of just a, a watershed. Anybody who heard him to, to either be polarized, but to say this this just got people. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Ben. Just just piggybacking on that idea of she and Martha is thinking of the resurrection as an event in the future. Yeah. And like, yeah, but it's a person to it's me. <laughs> if I it's utter yeah. different interpretation of that word and concept. It's it's all it's it's me and this future hope you have and only because of me and I'm the one that has power over life and death from my hair. <laughs> Just that was a huge shock and very beautiful to me that, that shift. Yeah, I, I think you know the, that Jesus wept is such a, a profound understanding of his humanity. Yeah. That when we say he is the you know, the God man, he understands us, he's been He's been you know, all these other things. The fact that he is feeling that intense emotion, even knowing that he's going to fix it down there, he, we could be there. Yes. And, and, and know that happened. I think that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the last line where Jesus said to them, take off the great clothes and let him go, makes me think of what you were talking about yesterday with the embodiment of the relationship and friendship that he. I mean, I think that embraced him and had him walk out freely. Um, but he had the community, the people, like physically go. Somebody had to unravel him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. Just doing about community without how beautiful. And for some reason, I've glossed over it and read it before, but Mary's crying, but the Jews that come along with her are also weeping. So there's this community of care yeah. amidst grief, not seeking to make it better, but grieving alongside. And then Jesus wept along with everybody. Yeah, he them. Wow. Yeah. So slightly um, maybe left of center, but Thomas's statement, um, that loyalty and that commitment, yeah, I think he often gets the, the unfair rap. I mean, there's not many people who would say, okay, let's, let's lock and load, let's go. Like, yeah. We're more in this. Yeah. Um, they're not going to cut around. And from, from what had happened in Judea, I mean, he was right to imagine 
Okay, I'm not sure. They're obviously confused, which I also find really encouraging. The disciples act like that, so I'm just like, ah, okay, I'm kind of with them. But they're ready to go. Potentially down. You have something? Yeah. Um, just playing off of that phrase, I am forever in life. I think it's beautiful comparing that with Jesus saying, my son Lazarus has fallen asleep, so I'm going to wake him up. Like, so often, I think Jesus is response to like our our questions are on this level and we need to talk about like this level. <laughs> like you're looking at the world through this TV lens and like and just this idea that like hmm. I, I think there is purpose in the fact that he says falling asleep like there's this spiritual reality that's coming to is so much greater even though it's infused into mm-hmm. like this whole reality that he's like Waking us up too. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of awakening. Yeah. Do you have something else? Uh, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. Mm. It's really beautiful. <laughs> like, Jesus doesn't even say that he's asking for Mary, but something in his character, like Mark and you said, he's beckoning for her. Welcome. Yeah. I've always just loved the way Jesus, his interactions with people are perfect. And even though they ask the same question, he knows Martha needs to hear this, and Mary yeah. doesn't even need to hear anything. Mm-hmm. And even over the one in Luke, where it's the same, it, these are the same two ladies, and yeah. you can just can tell even though it's different gospels, and it's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Martha's the light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I also think it's, it's beautiful that Jesus is worth, or he thinks it's worth going through all of this pain. Like he sees mm. the good, mm. the like massive transformational good that's going to come not just for this group of people, but for everybody in what he's going to do with Lazarus. And he knows that like it's worth his own weeping and his own anger, and like he's willing to do that with them. Mm. And I think that's so beautiful. That it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. And for God's glory. What's that? It's worth it also for God's glory. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have what you trying to say? Sorry. Yeah, what you said. <laughs> I was just going to say this, it's multi layered. It's an act of love to these people. <clears throat> it's a display of his own identity to everybody, and it's we get about glory. It's all of those things. Yeah. The way that why why he such a left Lazarus die. Yeah. This is my opportunity to show who I really am. Yeah. Because he was. Yeah. 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 Uh, One more beautiful thing. When you said glory and identity, I was thinking while you were reading this, I was wondering, and it just came back to me that you. Uh, why does Jesus start talking about um, walking at night and walking in the day and the light and the no light and the beauty is that he is announcing his identity here he's where if I can't remember John if it's before or after this where he says I am the light of the world mm-hmm. and talking about horses the when he says those words I am the light he's braying like a horse is the actual meaning of the Greek word and <laughs> And on the on the temple steps at, at Passover, when the lanterns, the the big the big lights are lit mm-hmm. for the first, and you can see it all over Jerusalem during that during that uh, ceremony, and he's up there 
hollering like a horse, I am the light of the world, and here he sing. You need the light. You need the light. Thank you for that. Beautiful. Okay, we've done our three tasks. Our three tasks with the text. We're going to move on to the poem. And then we're going to hold them side by side a bit more. First, we're going to read this poem. We're going to ask these same questions. Love to hear from y'all. But first, a few words about Dylan Thomas and about this poem. He was um, a Welsh poet who's from Wales. This was written, I think, in the late or mid 1940s. His marriage was falling apart at the time. He wrote this poem to his father who was dying of cancer. It is um, written in a very strict poetic form called the Villanelle. Is anyone familiar with Elizabeth Bishop's poem, One Art, The Art of Losing Isn't Hard to Master? Have you ever heard that poem? It's the same form. It's a very strict form, and you only really need to know all the rules if you're going to try to write one, which I have been trying to do for years. I've yet to do it. There is such repetition in this poem. Um, You have to have a couple lines that you love and that you're not tired of reading and hearing and sharing with other people. I haven't found those yet. So you don't need to know all the rules of a Villanelle, but I think it's funny to read them all because it seems so ridiculous and impossible. It's not impossible. People have longed in doing it. But listen to the rules of this poetic form that Dylan Thomas adheres to brilliantly. It's a poem of 19 lines. It has five stanzas, each of three lines, with a final one of four lines. The first line of the first stanza is repeated as the last line of the second and fourth stanzas. The third line of the first stanza is repeated as the last line of the third and fifth stanzas. These two refrain lines follow each other to become the second to last and last line of the poem. The rhyme scheme is A-B-A. The rhymes are repeated according to the refrains, and it's usually written in iambic pentameter. <laughs> it sounds pretty intense. It is strict, and it's difficult. And that's called what? A villanelle. Villanelle. Yeah, it's, um, it's an old Italian form that people guess, we don't know, guess, had some history in like agricultural tasks, so the repetition made sense. It was connected to repetitive tasks. So that's a little bit of a, of a villanelle. So let's hear it. I'm going to read it. We're going to talk about repetition questions. <clears throat> Has anyone seen Interstellar? <laughs> yeah. Some people call the whole film a midrash on this poem. Let's see here if you think that if you're thoughtful and refined. So. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieve it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. <coughs> Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, Bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What gets repeated? <laughs> Beyond the obvious, <laughs> uh, just as he goes through all these different types of people, yeah, just that repetition of pointing to all these different types of people, yeah, with the same. Yeah. What are the obvious repetitions? <laughs> Anybody? Well, you've got the last line being uh, the first stand being repeated everywhere except for in the second stand. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, second and fourth. Oh, oh. <coughs> yep. Dying of the light. What's the other obvious repetition? <coughs> Do not go gentle into that good night. What about repetition of theme and imagery, like we talked about in the Lazarus story? A lot of light. Yeah. Lightning and um, lightning, and then you know, the dying of the light. Yeah. Meteors. Yeah. yeah. It was a major reference. Yes. Yeah. There's also the repetition of men, but then there's variation in that too, so there's different descriptors. Yes. Mm -hmm. Different kinds of men, but men is repeated. Yeah. It's quite a poem, eh? You guys are all very engaged in the text. A lot of contrasting emotions. Gay, sad, fierce. Yeah. Curse and blast. Curse and blast, yeah. Contrast, alive and well. How about questions that arise for you? What questions bubble up when you hear this song? Yeah. I don't really understand the last name of where you would ask his father to curse him. Yeah. 
question. Or even that the comedy between don't go gentle, rage, rage. Is it good or bad? Yes. Yeah. Why is it good? Why are you resisting? Other questions? That's an observation, but um, you mentioned what women, what should happen or could have happened or might have happened. Um, not necessarily what does happen, but what you think ought to happen or is the potential for happening. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes you can't tell if you're being if the good men are being commanded to rage, or if it's just saying they do rage. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit unclear. Mm -hmm. I think on purpose, but yeah, that's a good observation. Yes? The, um, fourth stanza where it says, while the men caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they agreed it on its way. Do not be gentle and Yeah. And about grieving the sun. Yeah, grieving the setting of the sun. The question that arises, I mean, from his perspective, from me, maybe not. I thought of this way, but was this meant to be screaming into the, into the sky, or was this meant to be whispered in dark room? Hmm. Hmm. Yes, very good question. When we use the can't remember my grammar. The adjective grave, we're usually talking about something different than this because he says, what, is it, what does that mean? Grave men near death. So he's redefining grave here. He's redefining grave where there's two meanings, yes. Somber. Yes. But clearly he chose that word on purpose. Yes. I'm wondering how his father actually was reacting. Hmm. Was he raging or was he kind of resigned to it and he's trying to call him into more distance? Yeah. Yeah. Resist. Is he resisting death? Yes. Is he resisting death? Or asking his dad to resist death. Okay, let's move on to beauty. What could you name as good, as true, something you would return to for nourishment in this poem? He's given permission. That's a beautiful thing to me. Yeah. Yeah, not to just sit back and, well, that's coming. Just, yeah, to let him feel. To let him feel what he wants to feel. Mm -hmm. That's next to last stanza where he talks about great men near death to see with blind eyes and displayed like a new year to be gay. The whole idea that even if your body is falling apart, it doesn't have to mean the end for your spirit. <laughs> yeah, like the, the outward is fading away. But even blind eyes, I see what you're saying, yeah. It's good. Yes. I feel like I feel like there's such a depth of grief and sadness in the wrongness. But because of that word good, the good night, it makes it not feel tragic. Mm. That feels like something to hold on to. It, yes, it's so rawly, or raw and sad, but it's not tragic. But at the end of the day, it is a good night. Mm. 
on the back of that as well. Good night is something you typically say expecting there to be someone. It's, it's not permanent. You don't say good night to someone if you never expect to see them again. Yeah, only if they're going to sleep. Not if they're dying. Yeah. I think it's beautiful how he chooses to make it personal at the end. So, yeah, it, he could have not referenced his father at all, or, but instead he brings it to that. Like, I'm not just contemplating death and mm-hmm. urging broadly for people to fight that this is it, about this relationship. Mm-hmm. Individual. Yeah, personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a fan of that too. Poets that remain in the abstract. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it seems like he's embracing the anger surrounding death yeah. as is a result of being in a broken, fallen world. Um, and and he is, you know, he should rage against that, mm-hmm. and just uh, expressing those emotions. So yeah. This isn't, this isn't natural. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Good. Yes. Maybe I'm crazy, but when you when when you just said the anger surrounding death, I was thinking of this when you finished reading this. He's saying rage against the dying of the light. Yeah. And we talked previously about the light. The light of the world? Yes. And Jesus raging here, deeply moved in spirit, a horse snorting. Yeah. Jesus is angry with death, and Dylan Thomas is showing us that, I think. That's all I have to say. We can end now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking us today. Yes, one more comment. Beauty. I, I was just going to say, I love him last time when he says, first love me out of your tears, but he's not romanticizing his relationship with his father. Okay, well. That, like, mm-hmm. even if it is in, you know, his father with his fault, he's angry with his Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Now let's hold let's hold them close together if we can. I'm sure you've already been doing that in your mind, but we're gonna run out of time if we don't move on to this next part. Let's talk about where these two texts are different and where they're similar. But let's start just with difference. What's different between them? Just shout them out. You don't have to raise your hand. In the poem, the rage is impotent. The rage is impotent. Impotent. Then it ends with rage. Stop. And it ends with rage. All right. So you're saying that in the scriptures, the anger we see in Jesus is potent. <laughs> Has potency. You can do about it. Yep. Yep. I think you get that sense in this poem. Other things. What's different between these two? We could start by just saying. The poem is not scripture. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the same authority for our lives. <laughs> I, I think that's important to say. I love poems, but I still want to make that distinction. And while John is poetic, without a doubt, these 44 verses are not a poem, per se. Other differences? Yes. In the poem, the grief and the sadness whatever other emotions are coming through, it's really funneled through anger, specifically. Mm. Whereas you see a lot of changing of emotions and 
thoughts. I mean, it's a longer story, but <laughs> yeah, there's more variety of emotions. In yeah, yeah, right. And he goes from being angry to weeping to, and to joy, and there's these ups and downs where you feel the sadness and you feel all of those things apparent, but like it's through the lens of first the rage. Yes. I think along those lines, the poem is so emphatic as like an individual speaking, and I love about the scripture that there's a place for questions. The disciples are asking questions. Yeah. Is asking questions. Yep. Everybody's kind of asking questions, and your right. face are kind of an unfolding instead of just like an emphatic view from one person. Yeah. Which both are valuable. Yeah. That's their difference. People even comment that this form of villanelle refuses to move forward. It resists a narrative. So it's very different from this for exactly that reason. We see something unfold. That's why villanelles are so often written about loss or grief, because it's recursive. It just keeps coming back to these refrains. You think maybe you're moving forward moving forward a little bit? Nope, coming back. You think you're moving? Nope, you're coming back. Which is actually what grief feels like, which is brilliant that there could be a form that embodies that well for us, but it's totally different in the narrative. And it's a fair question, is, is our life, is our sorrow, are our losses more like a villanelle, more like a story unfolding, or help us, yeah, walk through them more, a bit of both, depending on the season. Yes, but one of the differences in the scripture, we have a quote, happy ending. You know, that you know, Lazarus comes out and is restored. Yeah. And this one does not have that any hope. There's a there's a terminal terminal point yeah. that's being approached. Yeah. It's terminal, you're right. And yet the dying of the light I mean that's exactly I think what's happening here. Jesus is aware of his own coming yes. death, yes. aware of the dying of the light, mm-hmm. he himself. Yes, I agree. And is there, isn't there something to rage against there? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's something to receive and rejoice in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, I don't think Dilettantes professed any kind of faith. But, and in fact, people think the wild men stanza, that's about him. <laughs> I believe he drank himself to death. He died very young, in his 30s. Um, and yet, this, the dying of the light, I have to really sense some resonance there with the death of Jesus, dying of the light of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even with the good ending, with Lazarus, he is going to die again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a temporary, the rage is still there. Yeah. Yes. I think you could take that, just this section, Jesus deeply moved and sat in her tones and just like insert this poem into that moment. Like, we want to expand what he's feeling in that moment. Like, this moment, if this poem feels momentary. Yeah, like, I like what you said about the how grief is just like can't move on. Yeah. It feels like this is our emotions yeah. that we have to put in the context of yeah. the prayers. But maybe that gap, the fact that this poem wasn't inserted there, welcomes expressions. Right. Right. Um, 
beautiful invitation. Yes, in the back. Yeah, it's giving like the poem is very much like that churning in someone's head. Yeah. How someone can be in grief and how it it does feel like there's not any light. And I don't know, you sort of have to get to that point to then be able, you have to like almost be honest with yourself that that's how it can feel to then be able to like, I don't know, just be honest with like, you know, you can make peace with death. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's why, like, the good news of the gospel is. Yeah, making peace with death. That is a very interesting mm-hmm. phrase and one that does get thrown around an awful lot. I have some questions about that. <laughs> is that what we're supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And we can receive peace from the death of Jesus, uh, but are we, are we meant to make peace um, with death? So we've talked about differences a little bit. We've also mentioned some similarities. I think that's a good segue. What are some similarities? Just to, and we're supposed to end at 12. We didn't start right on time. Just a few more minutes. Some similarities. I was thinking um, that the kind of each malady you were talking about, like a poem, where it won't move forward. Yes. That's a lot of times like how pain feels, right? And even Martha is saying, I know that there's this future hope, but right now this is pain. And I can't discount how eternal that feels in the moment. Like our mm-hmm. present is all that we really have. Mm-hmm. It's all we're experiencing. And the fact that Christ weeps in that moment, even though he is about to fix it, is like him embracing that and saying, yes, this does feel eternal in this moment. And I'm going to join you in that. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm about to fix it. Yeah. And it wasn't a show. I think that's really important to note. He wasn't just putting on his human show uh, for the moment. But entering really... Incarnating <laughs> this moment. There's a father and son. There's a father and son. Yeah, I wish we had more time to explore that. That is in both. Other similarities? Maybe just a couple more. Part of the similarities I wanted to highlight is how much both texts, some of you have said this, hold on to the both and nature of reality. Both hold things in tension, to use your phrase, Holly. In John's narrative, we see a tension held between Lazarus' death and Jesus' own coming death. There are a ton of references to, you know, the, the stone being rolled away, the grave clothes still being on him, how many days he's been in there, the smell even. Remember, um, we hear at the very beginning, this is the same Mary who put perfume on Jesus, which was like a burial preparation. So Lazarus' death, Jesus' death, Mary and Martha, there's a both and, night and day, death and light, sleeping and waking, blindness and seeing. Both of these texts, and in my humble opinion, the arts in general, tend to be a place where this both and reality is embraced and shared. And in fact, there are a great few lines from a poem I love, it just simply goes like this. Art knows that we're both living and dying. It can hold it. That is exactly what we see in these two texts, holding on to the both and, which actually helps us to be more human helps us to engage the more difficult moments, the tragic moments, the sorrow that we all encounter. If Jesus himself had to live in that tension, 
that both and tension, how much more will we experience it? To relieve these tensions is often to live in a fantasy. It would be inappropriate to who we are as creatures relating to a creator in God's world with our limitations and to seek to simplify in a way that would not be true to reality is not what we're asked to do. It's not what we're given. Or to relieve these tensions can be a type of sentimentality. right? A cheap relieving of tension that isn't real relief but a kind of abdication. <coughs> I think it's important to say this, and I'll, and I'll end with this. I'm not suggesting that all tensions are intrinsically good. <laughs> Some we desperately need to be undone, such as good and evil. <coughs> we don't want that tension to remain, that's what we're Or life and death, the tension we desperately need to be, to be undone, for death and evil to finally be banished. That's not a both and we want to continue. However, when it comes to facing our life now, especially our emotional life, especially our encounters with sorrow, with grief, with anger, I think it's best to follow the wisdom of the writer of Ecclesiastes. suggests it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. I'm going to end there. Thank you so much for making this a true workshop, which is my hope. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.